guys. Welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 17, where we were continuing the overall theme of Jesus's training of his disciples. Now, I don't want to go back and do a long uh, review, but remember everything started from chapter 12 of Matthew. Ever since the leaders of the people said that Jesus was demon possessed. This basically was the official rejection of Jesus. From that point on, Matthew chapter 13 and even forward, even as where we are now, Jesus began to talk about the new mystery kingdom. And we understand that new mystery kingdom is the church, or should I even say, will be the church which will constitute no longer simply in the sense in that Jewish mind that they once were expecting the kingdom of God, that Jesus would come be Messiah, king of the Jews, reign of the Gentiles, things of that nature. But this new mystery kingdom would be consisting of both Jew and Gentile. And that is always apart from the law of Moses under the law of Christ, that is under a new law, the law that would be given to through Jesus, the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. So he began to talk about this new kingdom and he began to train. Jesus began from that point on to emphasize, to concentrate on the training of his disciples in how they are to participate, what they would have to do in this new kingdom. So in chapter 17, it basically is a continuation of that concept of training. But before he continued in all of that, what we saw in the first beginning of 17 was for, for, the, for the most part, Jesus was trying to comfort the hearts of the disciples because he had already been telling them about his upcoming death and resurrection in Jerusalem. They didn't understand this. This saddened them. And, and again, they didn't understand this whole idea. If Jesus is, is indeed the Messiah, to the which they believed that he was, then what is this whole issue about death is all about? So they became a little disheartened in hearing all of this. And so that's basically what we see in chapter 17, an encouragement of their faith when Jesus was transfigured before them to truly show not only what the kingdom will be like, what the future kingdom will be like, which is still yet to come, even from this time that I'm speaking of, the kingdom is yet to come, which is the second advent of Jesus. What the kingdom will be like, what the people will be like in the kingdom. That is when we saw the representation being made from Moses and Moses, the dead in Christ, Elijah, those who were alive and transfigured and Peter and the apostle and the other disciples, that is Peter, James and John those human beings who will be in the kingdom, what the kingdom will be like being represented by those particular groups as well. And most important of all, what Jesus would be like, which was the whole instance of his transfiguration. But the whole idea is all of this is for the most part to comfort them. Then as he continued on into chapter 17, he kind of gets back on track. That is as Matthew is relating his gospel, he gets back on track with the training of his disciples in the sense that they cannot rely on any past gifts or abilities 
that the Lord has given them. That is just the whole issue about casting out the demon. And when Jesus said this kind cannot come out except by prayer, that is, it is necessary for the disciples, especially for the disciples themselves and also for all of God's people to continue in a personal intimate relationship with God, namely through prayer. And what does this continuous personal relationship, prayer relationship with God do for the disciples, for the individual? It increases their faith. That's why Jesus talked about this whole instance of simply having a little faith or even shall I be, I say it, a little pure faith can do a lot of things. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can speak to a mountain and the mountain will move. Okay. And that particular ends that section concerning the training of the disciples. Now he gets into the final section in chapter 17, which actually is related to chapter 18 to where we are today in talking about the kingdom or those who are in the kingdom. So Matthew introduces it in the sense of paying temple tax. And so this particular man comes up representative of the temple asking whether or not Jesus paid the temple tax or not. Jesus, uh, uh, Peter said, yes, Jesus pays his temple tax. Jesus understood this occasion before Peter even opened his mouth and made Peter told Peter to go and take a fish, go fishing. The first fish that he catches, there will be enough money to pay the tax for both Jesus as well as Peter. But he dealt with the issue concerning the children of the kingdom. That is, he asked his whole question, go back and look at it because I don't have time to rehash all of the details of it. But the point is, those who are of the kingdom, that is Jesus, as well as his disciples, are exempt from customs and taxes. That is taxes concerning the temple. But nevertheless, he did not want to offend uh, those who were collecting taxes. So he says, still, let us just simply pay our taxes. But now that's where we are today as we move into chapter 18. And this is what I want you guys to see. The whole point of the end of chapter 17, what Jesus was talking about is not so much as the nature of those who are in the kingdom, but the conduct of those who are in the kingdom. The, and so that's what we're going to catapult off of in chapter 18 in dealing with those who are in the kingdom, the children of this new mystery kingdom. Once again, we don't want to say things that confuse you guys. What is this new mystery kingdom? Matthew chapter 13 that Jesus was talking about. He is talking about the church, the church that Jesus will build, the church that will come to be after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after the coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Okay. So, but again, we don't want to lose the thing, even though our primary thought here is concerning those, the children of the kingdom, their relationships, their mindsets, because that's what he's going to talk about in chapter 18, the relationships of the children of the kingdom, the mindset that the children of this new kingdom. And when I say new kingdom, always think about the church, 
that which is today, because as I'm speaking, the church has been here for almost 2000 years. The mindset of the church, the, the relationship for the members of the church. And that's what you're going to see as he talks about in chapter 18. And that's what I mean. And that's what Jesus meant when he kept talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or chapter 13, this new mystery kingdom. So we don't want to lose focus. It is still, he is still concentrating on training his disciples. That's the idea for their future ministry. He's training them for their future ministry. And in a part of their training, he's teaching them how they should be and how the members of this new kingdom, the church should be. Okay. And so with all of that, let's just simply go into chapter 18. I think it should be clear at this time. 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such a one, such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, those are some powerful statements and they are chalked full of important points. Now, I'm going to try my best to complete chapter 18 It's not a difficult chapter whatsoever, but okay. Just pray for me. Let's see if we can finish chapter 18. Coming from 17, the end of 17, when Jesus was talking about the children of the kingdom being exempt from the paying of earthly taxes from that point. But remember, Jesus was not saying we should not pay our taxes. He was saying we should pay our taxes, even as Paul stated thus in Romans chapter 13, tribute to whom tribute, tax to whom tax, honor to whom honor is due, respect to governmental authorities and representatives of the government. But I'm not getting to all of that. That's not what Jesus was talking about. But coming out of that instance, that thought of the kingdom and the thought of children of the kingdom, Showing once again, as I was saying to you, that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was really talking about. Remember, I was telling you as from last video and even videos before then, the disciples didn't understand that Jesus was talking about the new kingdom, the church, even though Jesus knew what he was talking about, of course, and was preparing them for their future ministry to the which they are ignorant at this time. We can see even the disciples were expecting this still same kingdom. They were expecting, as we were talking about earlier, the kingdom that Jesus would bring to the Jewish nation. Jesus had already abandoned such things. They themselves did not understand it. But nevertheless, they came to Jesus thinking who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And so we can see this was basically 
a self-serving idea that they had uh, with respect to who would be the greatest. And this is, for the most part, being pushed because of the flesh. This operates, this was operating with them, and we have to be careful too, because the same thing operates with us today. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do my best, try not to do much preaching, but teaching. We have to be careful because we still have this same mentality about being greater than one another. And this was the mindset of the disciples in comparing themselves to one another. This is what Paul was talking about, even in the book of Corinthians, how those who compare themselves by themselves show or demonstrate they don't have true godly wisdom. And so notice we see the same thing here in the apostles in a sense of comparing themselves by themselves. Who is the greatest among them, amongst them? Who will have the greatest position in the kingdom of heaven, in the coming kingdom? That is, and so when we talk about, again, don't be confused, guys. Kingdom of heaven, they mean when Jesus and in their, in their perspective, Lord, and this is how they're saying it, Lord, soon you are going to set up the kingdom. And when you do set up this kingdom very soon, which one of us are going to be standing as one of the greatest? Which one of us is going to have the most power? That's what they're asking. That's how they're seeing it. Okay. But that is not how Jesus is going to respond to them. And that's how, not how Jesus is training them because Jesus is not concerned about that kingdom that will come right now because it's not coming right now. Jesus is talking about the establishment of a future kingdom, the church itself. And how should the members of the church behave themselves? Okay. With all of that, now let's get into the text. So what did Jesus do when they were wondering about who's going to be the greatest? He took a small child and that's what it was. And this is, a, this is key. He took a child who basically without much thought of knowing right and wrong, a child who would not think much of himself, a child who for the most part concerning maturity and development would be innocent of mind and innocent of heart. So he took that small child and set it in their midst as an example to them and said to them, reflecting on that child, except here when it says converted, the word comes from to turn or to return. The word comes from the Greek word to turn or return, which basically means a change of mind, except you change your mind and become like children. And that is the idea of to think in an innocent way, to not think so much of yourselves, not so much as to be converted, to be saved. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's simply saying to them, you need to change your way of thinking the way of thinking for those who are in the kingdom, the way of thinking for those of us who are in the church is not about whether we are great. The way of thinking is to think of ourselves 
as a child. And even as I, I, I talk about this, the words of Paul in the book of Philippians comes to me in chapter two, when Paul speaks to the arrogance of the church of the Philippians, who says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who not think of himself to be all of that. But what did Jesus do? He, he humbled himself. This is the principle that Jesus is teaching his disciples right now. A principle of humility, that humility that's found naturally in a very small child. He doesn't think of himself to be greater than another person. He's just innocent of mind. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. This is the kind of mind that is necessary, that is proper, proper for the children of the kingdom for the people of God, for the people in God's church, for us today to have an humble mind to not think of ourselves greater than another. And that is a problem that is, that is presently within the church and for the most part has always existed in the church. There are always these big eyes, as we call it today, and these little you's. There are always, and especially you'll see it in the church, certain families in the church that are more than other families. Certain people in the church there are more than other people in the church that have more you got more to say than anybody else in the church and somehow what you say and what you think of yourself you rule the church and you have dominion over the church it makes me think about what John said concerning what is the diastrophes who think himself to be greater than anybody else in the church but I'm not going to get into all of that and I'm not going to preach. I said I wouldn't, but it makes me want to preach because humility is the one thing that is always lacking in the church. Stop preaching. So what Jesus says, unless change your mind, stop thinking about up, think. And, and the whole issue of this is, and here's the point. As Jesus is talking to the uh, talking to his disciples with that child in the middle. Here's the point. Let, let me get through it. Let me get through it. I am talking to you, my disciples. Number one, this is how you need need to consider yourself. Think of yourselves to be like this small, humble child. Think of yourselves to be nothing. And it's just all throughout the Bible, the teaching of humility. What does Paul say in the book of Galatians? For if a man think of himself to be something when he is nothing, he has deceived himself. What did Peter say? He said, for God, and even James, what God does what? He exalts the humble of heart, but what does he do to those who are proud? He abases, he debases those who are proud. It's all throughout the Bible. Let's move. Let's move. Consider yourselves to be humble. This is the mindset that you need to have of yourself. And then he continues to say, now I'm finally getting to verse number five. Whoever receives such a one, such a, such a child receives me. Now Jesus began to talk about, because all of this is basically dealing with the regulation of relationships of God's people, 
the regulation of relationships of God's people in the church, how we should look at one another. Notice whoever receives such a one in my name receives me. How do you look at the lowly ones among us? How do you look at, how do you first, see the first thing he said, first need to consider yourself to be humble and lowly of heart. That's the first thing as a, as a king's child, as a child of the kingdom, that's how we need to see ourselves in an humble and lowly respect, number one. But number two, now let's look at other people. Let me just simply say it this way. Look at other people in the church. Look at the lower people in the church. Look at the poor people in the church, the people who are considered to be nothing in the church, who have nothing, the people who don't have great social status in the church, the people who don't have the big time job, the people who don't have a lot of money in the church. How do you see them in the church? That's what Jesus is trying to say. How you receive them, that's how you receive me. To receive the nobodies in the church is to receive Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, you need to be careful of how you treat the insignificant ones among you. So that's the warning. It's a double warning. It's a double warning in not to think of yourself, not to hit. You ain't hidden on nothing. So you need to get that in your head. And the second thing is don't look down your nose at other people in the church, whether they are poor people in the church, low in the social caste system that we have created amongst ourselves. Get over this thing about the nobodies in the church. Be careful. That's verse number six. Whoever causes one of the least of those in the kingdom to stumble. Notice that's okay. I'm doing too much preaching. I know maybe today is just one of those preaching days. Okay, fine. If I preach, I don't even care anymore. But what he is saying is this. Be careful how you deal with insignificant people in the church because God himself is going to pay you back. That's why he says, and notice the gravity of Jesus's warning. It is better to have a millstone. A millstone is nothing more than a huge grinding stone. Be tied around the neck. You be cast into the ocean. That means if you got a, a big, this big, huge stone put around your neck and you in the ocean, you are going to sink and drown. This is a severe warning of judgment of how you treat the insignificant people in the church. So, and even though I know I'm teaching you guys Matthew 18, I don't want to bypass the importance and the, and the significance of what our Lord is trying to talk about. And I feel the spirit of God telling me, tell them how important this is. Number one, think yourself to be nothing. Number two, be careful on looking down on insignificant people in the church. Do not mistreat fellow members in the church. Do not mistreat, look down your nose on the poor ones in the church. Ain't no such a thing as a big eye. 
and a little you. You need to be so careful because Jesus is watching how you treat insignificant people in the church, the ones without the voices, the ones that you ignore. Jesus is writing it down and taking note of these things. Okay. So, and that's what he is saying. He said that it is best for you to have a millstone put around your neck and be cast into the ocean than to mistreat the most insignificant of those who believe in me. And at the same time, remember in the very midst of those disciples is a small child. He keeps, Jesus is not talking about children. He is more so talking about insignificant ones in the body of Christ in the church. Okay. Now let's get into verse number seven. Let's keep going. As he continues to talk about, notice what you cannot deny and it's clearly seen. Relationship amongst believers. And that's basically what we're seeing. We're talking about the kingdom, this new kingdom. How should these kingdom children be? The mindset you need to have for yourself and the relationship that we need to have towards one another. And he will even continue on to deal with the governance how we need to govern ourselves, one another, the body of Christ should govern itself. But let me not be premature. Let's just get into verse number seven. Woe to the world because of his stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. Okay. Now he continued. Basically what we have in seven through 11 is a continuation. The thought has not changed. It is a thought of warning of how we continue, how we should treat the most insignificant ones among us. And here's the point that I want to make on this. Notice how Jesus continues the warning. Okay. First warning, better to have a millstone cast around your neck. Verse number six, second warning about the stumbling blocks, uh, uh, better to cut off your hand or your feet or pluck out your eyes. The point that I'm trying to make is this. It is important to Jesus how we treat one another, especially here. What is the context? The little child that is set in the midst. What is the context? The little child represents the most insignificant ones among us as believers, how we see 
insignificant Christians, as we might call it, if you let me use that term, because none of us are insignificant. But that's the point. The little child represents insignificant. That's the way the world would call it. And Jesus is driving home the point of judgment. Notice warning, millstone warning, warning, cut off your right hand, cut off your uh, right arm, pluck out your eye. In other words, be ever so careful how you treat the most insignificant ones in the church. I believe there is one listening to me now. You have thought of yourself as being somebody in the church, one who has more to say, who think more of yourself than you ought to. One who is possibly listening to me, you have mistreated others who you have looked down on. You have looked down, looked down your nose on other people in the church who may not have as much resources, social position, money, or whatever the world might think. You need to repent. Number one, you need to reassess what you think about yourself. And number two, you need to reassess on what you think about can I, let me talk like I want to talk, how you think about poor folk in the church, broke folk in the church, insignificant folk in the church. Reassess that, and that warning didn't come from me, that warning came from Jesus. Back to, okay, let's just go back to the text. Woe to the world, what does Jesus mean by that? He says, it's impossible that stumbling blocks may come. Let's just simply stay with the context. So let me go back to teaching. Because of our sinful human nature, that's the bottom line. We are going to act up. We are not going to treat people right. Because of our sinful nature, we are not going to treat one another right. That's what Jesus is saying. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks mean causes people to stumble. Who is he talking about? The little child sat in front of them. The example of the insignificant Christian, the lowly Christian, sinful nature. We mistreat people with less power than we have. We mistreat people who we think have less social position than we do. It's sinful human nature. It will happen. And that's why Jesus gives a warning. But for kingdom children, it is better for us to turn, change our mind. That is cut off the right hand, pluck out the eye, Stop these, this kind of a thinking. Stop this kind of behavior of mistreating of those who are, who seemingly to be more insignificant than we are. Stop it. Better to cut off the right hand and pluck out the right eye so that we can do what? Enter the kingdom of heaven so that finally we can come into the presence of God. That's all that Jesus is talking about. The behavior of God's children. So as far as we as God's children are concerned, 
stop it, cut it off. And that's basically what he's trying to say. And that's and, and up to verse number nine, but even to the point of what do you say? Pluck out your eye and throw it from you so that we can enter into life. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Verse number 10, he ends and says, make cat notice. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, notice Jesus got that little baby set in the midst of them. He is not simply talking about the little baby, but he is talking about the most insignificant ones among us, amongst us, Christian people. Okay. Children. Yes, there is a sense. There is a sense that Jesus is talking about children. Yes, Jesus does love children. Okay. But the overall idea is because he was saying to the disciples, remember, except you change your mind and become like this little child. So that's the idea. The insignificant ones among us, the saints of God, and not just simply children as a whole. But we can understand the concept of children that Jesus may be talking about. But the point he's saying in verse number 10. So let me wrap this section up. Don't despise the little children because their angels see the face of my father in heaven. There comes a dual sense. There's a possibility that Jesus is talking about little children who do have guardian angels. And these guardian angels up until some point in their lives. Watch over little children. I'm not going to get into that because the Lord himself did not give great clarity to that it, it, here in this verse. There's not a lot of clarity to that, but let me just simply make the point. So let me teach it. Little children do have angels who do watch over them up until a certain point in their lives. Okay. Probably to the point of decision when they're able to make and choose for themselves, right? A point of decision when they can come and choose Jesus for themselves. Point number one. Okay. We can have that case. The second case and this second case is the case of context. What Jesus is actually talking about. Be mindful of all of the saints for all of the saints. And this is a true thing for the saints. All of us as saints of God have guardian angels. And our angels are in the face of God all the time. So what he is warning in the end is be mindful how you treat even the most insignificant saint of God. Why? Because the insi most insignificant saint of God has a guardian angel in heaven who is in God's presence to talk about how you are treating them. And that's what he's trying to say. So that's a beautiful thing in the end. What? Be careful how you treat God's children, even the most insignificant of God's children. Why? Because even the most insignificant one has an, a representative angel in heaven who is telling God how you are treating, or should I say in context, mistreating them. And that's the context. So let's wrap this section up. I've spent enough time on it. In dealing with coming out of chapter 17 and chapter 18, dealing with the kingdom, he's now talking about the relationship. Relationships of how number one, we should view ourselves, and then number two, how we should view others. 
then in the sense of viewing them, that is as children, insignificant children, small children, how we should be so careful how we should treat the very least of those amongst us. And that's the issue of that. Okay. Now let's get into verse number 12 as he continues, cause this whole chapter is going to talk about how we need to treat one another in the church. That is when he keeps talking about in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom, in the church, the relationship that we need to have towards one another, how we need to view one another. He just got through talking about that, how we need to treat and respond to one another. Now he's going to talk about that, especially from the perspective of leadership, how we need to treat, respond to one another, especially from the perspective and response of leadership. Verse number 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one thing for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Okay, so now he's teaching us here to value one another. So notice, he just told us about how to assess one another. Previous thing, how to think of yourself, how to consider even the most insignificant of, of, of those amongst us, okay? That's the first thing. Now here, 12, the value of one another. We must, and especially towards leadership. So he gives a parabolic example of a shepherd. And that's why we can see how this is so significant for leaders, that is pastors and elders in the church. But this also applies for all of God's people, how we should have this brotherly love and consideration care for all of the members. So he says, imagine a shepherd having a hundred sheep. One goes astray. He leaves the 99 in a safe place on the mountain, finds that one, when he finds it, he rejoices. He rejoices in finding the one. And so, and he brings it back to the fold. And so he says, this is the mindset of God. God does not wish any of us to perish or to be lost. So the idea that he's teaching concerning the church is, especially for leadership, is value one another to the extent if you see another one of us going astray, those who are in good shape with God. Can I say it that way? Going astray could be, without me getting into a bunch of examples, doctrinally astray, because sometimes we can get in the wrong doctrinal teaching, start listening to the doctrinal, wrong doctrinal teaching, going to other churches, listening to other pastors and blah, 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 tweet, tweet. You are a sheep going astray. And, and, and okay, I'm not gonna even get into the sin thing because he's gonna deal with that later on. So let me just simply deal with that right now. So what do we do? Even for the most whether the sheep is big time sheep, little time sheep, which is no such thing, but y'all know the way that I'm trying to say it. Value one another 
in such a way that this member, this person is so important that I, I need to go and see about him or her, even from the perspective of a pastor or perspective of a minister or a teacher or a leader. You know that this particular member is moving aside. How much should you love and demonstrate love for that particular member? Show enough concern to go visit them, to go see about them. They have gone astray. Go and find them. Go to the place where they are and try to help them. Love them enough to try to bring them back into the fold. This is not, this is with tenderness and love. So what is Jesus trying to say? We should have enough love. We should assess one another, have this assessment toward one another. The assessment is the assessment of love. And that's basically what I'm trying to say while I'm fumbling over my own words. Love one another. That's what he is saying. Okay. How should we love one another? Love one another to such a way. If you see one of your brothers or sisters beginning to doctrinally stray away from the truth of God, go to them, tell them, do all that you can to help them, to bring them back into the fold to bring them back into the truth. And then I like this too. Notice when you bring them back to the truth, notice what happened when he went and found the sheep that was lost. He rejoices. This again is the evidence of his love. And I like this. Okay. I think I'm getting too emotional. How should you feel towards that member who has been brought back into the truth? How should you feel about that member who has been reproved, corrected, and reestablished in the truth? Should you go like, all right now, you you messed up, now you need to keep yourself together, all right, and everybody look at him, and everybody take a lesson and learn from him, and all right, we kinda need to kinda keep our distance from him. And No, and that's always the case with God, isn't it? When you see a member brought back into the fold, brought back into the truth, brought back into the body, there is always rejoicing. The true heart of those who do the work of, isn't it such a multifaceted teaching? It is. Those who do the work of reestablishing of bringing back those into the fold. The heart of that person is to rejoice. It is not to condemn. Notice, let me give you another example. And I know this is a little long and I'm gonna do my best, make it short. Jesus gave an example concerning, remember the prodigal son. What did the father do for the son who returned? Let us have a party, kill the fatted calf, and rejoice. All I'm trying to say to you is this. What is the response when a person, when we have one of our own, repent, come back into the fold, 
to be reestablished from doctrinal error. If you have assessed them properly, if we love them as Jesus is teaching us to love them, the proper response is when a person is reestablished is to rejoice. And that's something that we always should do. We should not have a negative attitude about those who need repentance and come into repentance. We shouldn't kind of ostracize them a little bit or put them away a little bit. We should welcome them with open arms, arms of love as if they never sinned at all, if they never strayed at all. Mindset is to rejoice. I guess, guys, one of the reasons why I'm spending so much time on these particular instances is because of that I'm, I'm a pastor myself. And I have to be careful so many times. Not only do I, I do personally take these things to heart because people do fail. And how do I look at it when people fail? I want to receive them back with love and care. I don't want to ostracize them. But more importantly, I want to tell the other members of the church how to act towards them. And that's why I'm kind of spending this time so that you will know how to deal with other members in the church when they stray away. Don't have these negative attitudes about them, but welcome them back with joy. Or as Jesus would say, if they came back, kill the fatted calf and have a party. OK, but let's continue on. So now so we can see this instance as Jesus talking about here, 12 to 14. We can understand this straying to be applied with doctrinal straying. That is to stray away from the truth, the truth of what is taught in Scripture, hearing this bad teachings from other teachers, preachers and things of that nature. OK, now as we get into verse number 15, let's talk about members who sin again, the idea is relationship of those in the kingdom. How should we deal with those brothers and sisters who sin? And that's what Jesus is going to talk about in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have warned your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. OK, now Jesus is talking about a sinning brother. OK, so the here is again. In application, a brother who is straying, a sheep that has strayed, notice one who has sinned. Overall, what Jesus is talking about here is overall church discipline, 
this new kingdom, this new kingdom. Okay, that's the application. This new mystery kingdom, parables of chapter 13. We know the bottom line. He's talking about the church because notice here we have the actual mention of the church. Jesus would be in the mind of the disciples. They would understand it to be the assembly of the saints. But we understand it even here, the church, if the brother sins. So what he does is this. He says, so if a brother sins and in some manuscripts it has against you, but let's just simply deal with the sinning brother. If a brother sins, Jesus began to give us a remedy to how to deal with a sinning brother. First, go to the brother privately. That is trying to bring in another person to deal with the brother, deal with the brother one on one. Bringing in other people can sometimes yield embarrassment. No need to embarrass a brother if the brother will simply listen to you. So if one of one of us sins, notice what the Bible did not say. Notice what Jesus did not say. Jesus never. I probably need to shout this from the rooftop. Do I need to stand up and say it? But Jesus never told us to ignore one another's sins. In other words, when people like to say nowadays, my sin is my business. His sins, her sins is their business. That's a lie. A brother or sister's sins is our business. We are our brother's keeper. So let me just simply say that without getting into a lot of preaching. When one of us sins, it is the responsibility of one another to address our brother's sin. We don't ignore one another's sin. Enough said about that. So Jesus is giving a remedy to deal with a sinning brother. First thing, go to the brother that sinned privately, one-on-one. -on -one. If the brother listens to you in your rebuke, and of course you need to have the spirit of reconciliation, okay? So if the brother listens to you, Jesus says, you've done, it is great. It's a good thing. You've gained your brother. Nothing further needs to be done. But if the brother becomes obstinate and still won't listen to you, he says, then take two or three witnesses. We learned this from the principle of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 19, when Moses says, when you are establishing a fact, this is in a, this is in a court, when you're establishing a fact, no person shall be condemned without two or three witnesses. And so Jesus is simply using this same principle. There must take two or three witnesses to that brother. And in the presence of those witnesses, try to convince that brother. Turn away from your sins, brother. And you got the smaller group. If that brother is still obstinate, Jesus says we have a higher appeal. The higher appeal is the church body. That's why he said he refused to listen to that two or three weeks. Tell it to the church. Tell it to the great body as a whole. And even if he refuses to turn from his sin after being rebuked by the whole church body, count that brother, notice what he says, as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, Jesus is giving, he is simply saying, let the church excommunicate the brother or sister. In other words, what Jesus is doing is this. 
Okay, let, let me finish it. Let me finish it. And then, I, and, and then I'll come back and tell you guys as a whole. Th that's why he continues to say, notice, stay in the context. Stay in the what? Always stay in context. Notice what he says. Truly what I ever say, I say unto you, whatever you bound in heaven should be bound in the earth. That is, the church has the power to excommunicate the brother. Heaven will agree to what the church has done. Then he continues to say, notice, that's why he says 19. Again, I say unto you, that is the same context. What? If two of you or three, two or three of you agree about anything on earth, it will be done. Wherever two or three are gathered, I am in the midst. So let me explain it because a lot of people think that they're talking about Jesus is talking about prayer. Jesus is not talking about prayer at all because why? Where in the context of these, these verses has Jesus mentioned prayer at all? Jesus ain't talking about no prayer. Jesus is talking about discipline. And when he says wherever two or three are gathered in my name, he is using the rabbinic sense. It's a common rabbinic teaching concerning judges, whether there be two judges or whether there be three judges. When the three judges renders a judgment, God sanctions the judgment that has been rendered by the judgment. In other words, heaven agrees with the judgment of the judgment. Now let's bring all of this in context. When a brother has sinned, this is the full context, so we can move on. A brother has sinned. One individual who is aware, go to the brother privately to try to convince the brother to stop sinning. If the brother listens and stops, great. If the brother does not, then the person who went to the sinning brother can elevate it and should elevate it by taking what? Two or three additional witnesses to the brother to try to convince that brother to stop sinning. If that brother still refuses to stop sinning, then that is, it is to be elevated even higher. Take that sinning brother to the whole church body and the whole church body is to render judgment to the sinning brother. And that's why Jesus began to say, because I say unto you, whatever you bound, and the you here in the Greek is plural, whatever the church bounds, what in however the church rules concerning that sinning brother. How did the church rule? Jesus said this, if he didn't listen to privately, if he didn't listen to the two or three witnesses, if he didn't listen to the church at large, count that sinning brother as a tax collector or a Gentile. That is, as a, okay, slowing it down. A Jew understands Gentile, unclean, not a part of the community of God. That's what it means. A tax collector to, is revived, reviled, not considered to be a part of the community of God. We understand it today, excommunication. Excommunication simply means to be put out of the church, to be put out of the church. So Jesus is literally saying, that's why he continued to say, whatever you bound shall have been bound. And if two or three of you agree, acting as judges, I myself, will sanction the judgment. Or in other words, 
the church has the power to discipline its members. And that's what Jesus is teaching in this section. The church has the power to discipline its ministry members, even to the point of excommunication. Excommunication simply means putting a member out of the church. And we see Paul talking about this in first Corinthians chapter five in dealing with the sinning brother that the, that the Corinthians should have already put the sinning brother out of the church. And this is where the principle of this teaching comes from right here in Matthew chapter 18. Okay. All right. So that's what he teaches. So when he talks about, let me say this to, to make the point and move on two or three gathered in my name. That is not about the number of people to make a church, two or three gathered in my name. That is not talking about prayer. That is talking about two or three people acting as judges in the sense that the whole church can judge a sinning brother and even put the sinning brother out of the church. And when they do this thing, heaven itself, Jesus himself will say, fine, I, this, what you have done is acceptable by me. It is approved by me. How to deal with a sinning brother, the power of the church body to deal with a sinning brother or sister. And that's the idea. So now let's move on to verse number 21, still dealing with the issue of this new kingdom relationship of believers with one another. Now Jesus is going to talk about moving from disciplinary action of believers. He's going to deal with the forgiveness because there's always the need for forgiveness. Verse number 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Okay, now that's a long section, but it is it's pretty much simple, isn't it? But let's just simply get into what is going on. As you've already said, now he talks about the relationship of believers. Relationship in the church is the heart of forgiveness. Or even, should I even say, the willingness to forgive from the heart. So what happens? So now Peter comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, here's the thing that's important. How many times shall I forgive my brother? That's what situates us to the church. That's what points us to one another. How often shall we forgive even in the church one another? Because what? Stuff happens in the church all the time. We sin against the church. We sin against one another. We say bad things about one another. We do bad things to one another. And I guess this is just one of those preaching chapters. And we need to get this in our mind because even now there are probably some of you who have this little, this crust set in your heart against a brother or sister who said something months ago, years ago to you, and you still haven't gotten over it. You still haven't forgotten them. You sit away. You don't sit too close to them. You don't say too much to them because why? Like Jesus said, you did not forgive from your heart. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. But anyway, back. Peter thought he was saying something big. He said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. Because according to the rabbis of their time, you should forgive only three times. And after having forgiven three times, you're not required to forgive anymore. So when Peter said seven times, he thought he was doing something really big. Jesus let all the air out his balloon. He said, but I say unto you, not seven times, 70 times seven, because Jesus said 70 times seven, 40, 90 times. Jesus was simply saying an unlimited times because who will keep count 490 times? By the time you got to 490, you would have lost count. Jesus is saying, be willing to forgive your brother in an unlimited time, limited number of times. And it's so true because notice even in this parable, because the great king who was owed the debt is God. That's the great king. The slave who owed the huge debt that he could not pay, that's us and our sin. And God freely forgave us our sin debt. Not only did God forgive us our sin debt, huge sin debt of the past, he forgives us continuously of our sin debt of our daily sin. 
if God should forgive us of great sin debt and daily sin, should we not forgive our brother and sister small sin debt continuously 490 times? I know I just covered the whole parable, but that's the whole point of what Jesus is trying to say. What I am saying to you is the mind we should have a heart to forgive one another over and over and over. But let me just get back to the parable. So Jesus says, be willing to forgive to Peter, not only seven times, but in unlimited times, even seven times 70. So he gives a parable of a great uh, a, a master and he called about a slave. He said the time had come for all of his slaves to give an account money that they owe time to pay all your money back. So he calls this one particular slave who had owed him 10,000 talent. Uh, one single talent was a huge amount of money. So the 10,000 talents here would be, would be equivalent to millions of dollars. The point is there was no possible way this slave in this much debt could pay this much money back. There was no possible way. So when the master called the slave to pay the money back, slave had not the money. The master did what was natural to be done. This was the natural case. What is the natural case? All right. Take the slave, put the slave, sell the slave into debtor's prison. Debtor means you pay back the debt in the prison. His wife, his children, and everything that he had. There was nothing unusual for this type of behavior from the master. This was the norm that the master would do, okay? Because the debt was so huge, he could not pay. He said, okay, fine, the debt needs to be paid. Put him away until the debt is actually paid. The slave fell on his face and said to the master, give me time. Here's what I want you to see. There was no possible way. I don't care if he gave him 10 lifetimes, the slave would never be able to pay back the debt that was due. Think about this huge amount of money as sin. Think about it as your sin. It is my sin. There is absolutely nothing we can do to pay back God for our sin. Nothing we can do to get God to remove our sin. God removed our sin freely by the death of Jesus on the cross. No matter what we could do, we could do nothing to satisfy our debt for all the lies we've told, all the thefts, all the things we stole, all of our sexual immoralities, our fornication, all of our adulteries, nothing we could do all the lies and deceits, the lies we told even as children. Okay, enough preaching. I just want you to see the huge debt of our sin against God. Only God knew the magnitude of your sin against him. That's what God is trying to say. Give me time. He knew there was no amount of time Notice what the master did. It is absolutely amazing. 
he forgave the dead. Notice, but when he, what prompted the master to forgive the dead? He felt compassion. And that's what we need to see. He did what? Looking at this sinful, see, that's the dead, sin, ragged, decrepit man. All he could do was feel compassion. And notice the compassion that he felt made him simply not give him time. Wipe the debt clean. Millions and millions of dollars. He simply looked at his slave and said, I tell you what, you don't owe me a dime. Man, that slave should have got up and danced all over the place. Now that is a time to do Martin Luther King free at last. He set him free from the dead. But let's continue the story because I've been long enough. I guess I'm just long today. That slave got up. He found another slave that owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii basically is significant of a day's pay, a, a, a one day's pay. A hundred denarii. Here's the thing. Another slave who owed him. The money that the other slave owed him was payable. It could be paid back. It was nowhere near the amount of money that that slave owed his master. Here's what Jesus is trying to say. When other people sin against you, it is nowhere near the sin that you have sinned against God. It ain't even know. When they told the lie on you, it was nowhere near the lies you told when God forgave you your lies. When they scandalized your name, it was nowhere near how you made God look like a laughing stock in all of your sins. It was nowhere near the sins you sin against God. That guy found a slave who owed him a little money. And what did he do? He grabbed him by the neck and shook him and told him, repay me. That slave fell to the ground, said, give me some time and notice, but he was unwilling. The point is this, that slave should have learned from his master. What should he have learned from his master? Compassion. He should have looked at, can I break it down? I'm out of time. We should look at our own brothers and sisters when they sin against us, when they do things against us, look at them in the same sense that we look at ourselves. I'm a sinner against God and I have sinned against God. And you know what? My God had compassion on me and forgave my sinful self. When we look at our brother and sister, understand just like we are sinners, guess what? They are sinners too. Notice what Jesus said even early in this teaching. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks do come even amongst us. It's inevitable that even we sin against one another. It is inevitable that from time to time we say things. It is inevitable from time to time that we do things to hurt one another. Sometimes saints hurt one another. 
sometimes saints sin against one another. What should we do? How should we look at one another? Bring all of chapter 18 together. How should we look at ourselves? Think of yourself as this humble child. Think of yourself as a nobody. Think of your, uh, think of your, the saints, your fellow saints, how you be careful of how you treat them. Be careful of how you acknowledge them. Be careful of how you want to forgive them. Don't think of yourself so much that you cannot forgive. See that it all comes together. Be willing to forgive saints. Okay, I'm done. Maybe you need to go and apologize to somebody whom you have not forgiven. Maybe next Sunday or next church meeting, instead of you sitting three pews away, maybe you need to go and sit right beside that person whom you have not forgiven from your heart and forgive them. How often shall I forgive my brother? As much as necessary. So let me finish it. So Jesus gives a warning that except we forgive one another from the heart, notice what happened to that man who was unforgiving. God put him back into the debtor's prison until he should be repaid all that he is due. It seems to suggest here in the text, as I bring it to a close, having an unforgiving spirit is simply an identification. It simply, simply says that you yourself have not been forgiven by God himself. Because notice what happened to the man. He was put into the debtor's prison where he himself had to pay back all that was due to his master. This is basically the symbol of hell. That's all that is, okay? Having an unforgiving spirit seems to suggest here that you yourself have never been forgiven by God. The person who is unwilling to forgive his brother or sister, when you are unwilling to forgive, it, bottom line, you ain't saved yourself. You ain't saved yourself. When you are unwilling to forgive the debt of others, your own debt has not been forgiven. So maybe you need to go and get your debt forgiven so that you can forgive the debt of others. Okay, let me close it because I've already exhausted myself and I already probably exhausted your patience. Thank you for joining me in this teaching. What is Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 18? He is talking about the relationship of the believers coming out of chapter 17. First thing that he begins to do is teaching humility, how we should see ourselves. Number one, the example as that child and how we should see fellow believers and we should be careful how we should treat fellow believers, even those who are significant, insignificant considered to be insignificant among ourselves. Number two, the care we should have one another for one another, the love that we should have one another. 
What is the value we should have for one another? Even the most insignificant, that even if one begins to stray, go and find him. What's the attitude that we should have? Lord, I thank you that my brother or sister has come back to the church. Lord, I thank you that they are now on the right path. Don't get an attitude about it, but rejoice. Then what did Jesus continue to teach? The power of the church to discipline its own members. If a brother sins privately, one-on-one, -on -one, try to get it right. If he doesn't listen to that, two or three. If he doesn't listen to the two or three, let the whole church come together and the church has the power to discipline that sinning member to the point of excommunication. Or in other words, put that member out the church. That is, Jesus says, treat him like a Gentile, treat him like a tax collector. And does heaven say the church has the power to put a member out or that the church can elect judges within the church? Two or three gathered in my name. Two or three gathered in my name. Does the church have the power to elect judges? First Corinthians chapter six, judges to put, to, to put discipline on its members? Yes, if two or three gather in my name, I have sanctioned the judgment of the church. Whatever you bound shall be bound. In other words, the church has the power to discipline its members. And then concerning relationship of the members of the church, how should we deal with one another? Why? It is inevitable that we sin against one another. We're sinners. We all sin in one form or another. How should we deal with one another when it comes to forgiveness? Should we have this issue of being unwilling to forgive? Jesus says, be willing to forgive one another as much as we sin against one another. Thank you guys for joining me with that. And again, I know I did a lot of preaching and I think I needed by the spirit of the Lord, I needed to do some preaching because some of you not only needed to hear the teaching of 18, you needed to hear the preaching. Preaching is taking the word that is taught. That's what preaching is, to take the word that is taught and then to push that taught word to say, now do it. That's all preaching is. Preaching is to proclaim with example, to proclaim with example, do that which has now been taught. But anyway, thanks for joining me with chapter 18 as we talked about how Jesus is training his disciples more uh, contextually, how Jesus is now teaching how the relationship of believers ought to be in this new kingdom that is in the church so join me next time as we continue in the teaching of our master on jesus teaching of the relationship of how things should be amongst the believers in the church chapter 19. see you then